0: Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, the Smart Cities Podcast is the only podcast dedicated to all things smart cities. The podcast is the creation of ARC Advisory Group's Smart City Practice. ARC advises leading companies, municipalities, and governments on technology trends and market dynamics that affect their business and quality of life in their cities. To engage further, please like and share our podcast, or reach out directly on Twitter at Smart City Viewpoints, or on our website at www.arcweb.com backslash industries backslash smart-cities.
1: Welcome again to another episode of the Smart City Podcast. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by Herb C., Senior Partner at Pioneer Partners. Uh, welcome, Herb, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great, Jim. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Hey, it's, well, it's great to have you. Uh, Herb, can you um, can we get started with you giving us a little bit of background of how you came to this uh, smart city ecosystem?
2: Sure, Jim, I'm happy to do that. Well, really, there are a couple of things that I think are valuable for the listener to understand of what, what makes me tick and how I think about things in the smart city space. One of the first things that's somewhat salient would be, uh, I was in the military for 11 years, and uh, as a military helicopter pilot, uh, you're given missions to accomplish, but you also understand that, um, you know, you don't have a, a parachute, so you take off expecting to crash, and yours are coming up with plan B to be able to make sure in the event that you've got a problem that you know how to accomplish a mission and not, you know, have bad consequences. So that's the first thing. Smart cities, there's a lot of uh, issues that you come up with, you don't always know how, you, how to get there, but you always have a plan B, C, or D in your pocket. Uh, another piece that kind of led me to where I'm at, Jim, is I spent a number of years, 14 years in the investment and finance space. And so whether it was managing money or getting into investment banking, I was even on a venture fund. Uh, really, it gave me an understanding of the economics and the orientation, especially for stakeholders. You know, the return on investment, both from cities and from the you know business market, they're really important, and that really gave me a foundation. And then lastly, how I got here, we took the combination of those experiences and my background along with my partners. And in 2009, we started a company called Think Big Partners, and that really started off as a technology incubator. We started running accelerator programs for emerging technology, and that program caught the eye of some of the larger Fortune 50 technology companies. We started doing innovation partnering, of which that led to our first project that we were asked to do, really is more of a an example of how to use advanced technology to help cities, back in 2014, when Cisco approached us, we really didn't know what a smart city was, but we knew that technology could be used as a tool to solve problems. That's how we got into the space uh, in 2014. And since that time, we've, you know, worked in probably 40 cities since. And Pioneer Partners was spun out uh, from Think Big Partners a number of years ago to specialize and focus exclusively on digital transformation and helping cities, you know, make that journey.
1: Wow, so you've been uh, you've got a, a varied career there. Um, you know now that you're involved in the world of smart cities and more particularly smart city public-private partnerships, um, let's get started with you you giving us you know your perspective of the history of smart city uh, PPPs
2: sure. Um, well, what's interesting to note is sometimes you don't realize that you're in a uh, partnership until you're kind of along the way. and so, If you think about the role that cities play and, you know, they represent the citizens and the businesses and they're trying to create a high quality of life. If you really start going back, when they first started contemplating this back in 1974, LA created what they'll call a, you know, urban big data project and it was called a cluster analysis of Los Angeles. Really back then it was an intelligent viewpoint using data to try and better understand how they can improve the quality of life. Well, If you follow them the course of that line of thinking, um, Amsterdam created something, you know, 20 years later, and then you started getting the commercial markets. IBM actually along with Cisco in the early 2000s, they started really investing a lot of time and money into the research. And that partnership started to happen because when the private sector market got involved with these cities, that's where the partnership really began because you can't really do research in a vacuum. And then over the years, as you saw this as it sort of really first blossoming, you know, you had Barcelona that came out. Um, There was a city called Yokohama, you know, that that was a demonstration project in 2010. Um, There was a, a project in South Korea that took place and the evolution of the partnerships went from theoretical and academic to more research and practical. And then it started getting into specific challenges. That people were facing, whether it was urbanization or traffic or, you know, climate change. You know, they didn't call it that back then, but really that's where the evolution of partnerships came. And and really, there's been probably 20 projects I could point to over the course of the last 30 years. But especially since mid late 2000s, that's really where they started to pop up.
1: Wow, that's that that is fascinating. So you you alluded to an evolution of P3s over over those decades. Um, how have they changed in the last, you know, five or ten
2: years? Well, what's been interesting, Jim, is if you if you go back just let's go back about ten years ago, um, you had a combination of technologies and you know goals, and I'll even say hopes of the cities that started really coming together and butting up against each other. And so about ten years ago, you had the hope and promise of what we'll call smart cities, you know. Um, impact areas, but the technology didn't quite make it. And there's a whole array of technologies that has to come together. And so you have to have connectivity. You know, that connectivity provides that base layer. Then you have to actually the application itself. So what was the starting point of a good discussion where people thought they were quite ready for, you know, prime time became not quite ready for prime time. And so the partnerships went from, How do we get something done and realizing that we aren't quite there to, okay, we're starting to get some success. You're getting incremental progress. And they started developing a much more robust set based on, you know, learning, understanding, working how to collaborate. And it became more of a working relationship that was an ongoing process versus kind of a project with a very finite beginning and end. Because again, to get from point A to point B is not always well-defined. And I think now you've got an evolution of um, mutual benefit stakeholders working in an ongoing conversation that really understand that they have to be able to represent both sides to be successful. And you have to look at all the array of technologies together all at the same time to be able to really understand that partnership is going to work. So I think it's, it's become much more of an ongoing, you know, relationship that has a lot of stakeholders versus, you know, one or two parties. They kind of dream something up in the back room and then just give it a shot.
1: Well, well, um, you you know, you allude to to a numbers of stakeholders. Uh, Public private partnership intuitively um, has two partners, public and the private. Who
2: are these other stakeholders? Well, it's it's interesting. So if you think about public, let's first kind of look at that. Um, historically, if you really look at especially the role of innovation, the federal government has been acting as what I will call a catalyst or even a convener, you know, for decades. But as you go on, and especially when you go under the word smart cities, um, the cities really are probably still the last biggest group of, of, you know, people that can work together, but can still have enough impact, but it can be manageable to get success. So when you look at the cities, cities um sometimes they're just you know a city by itself but if there's a region around them and so depending on where you live you know i'll I'll pick an easy one you know manhattan you know and new york city but then you look around you know the dynamic that new jersey may have and if you're living in new jersey but working in downtown manhattan these regions so the first public stakeholders are often regions with the city as an epicenter But because of the nature of things, state, whether it's funding or it's the ability to be able to, you know, pull in other favorable regulation, because some of the regulations are at state level. And then certainly the federal government, particularly in the, you know, age of IJA funds and ARPA that we just came out of, you've got multiple stakeholders just on the public side. If you start now unpacking the next interim, uh, step here, it's kind of a hybrid. It's the NGOs, it's the, academic organizations, those aren't, aren't always well understood on the public side. You've got folks that, you know, if you're, let's say working off a grant from NIST or you've got something coming out of COVID, you know, the National Institute of Health played a really big role in the National Science Foundation. You know, even though you've got federal agency, but you've got now specific agencies that are working on a mi- microcosm that is very specific. So you've got not just cities, states, or federal government, but you now have agencies, and then you bolt on the private sector, and that really has expanded too. Besides the large companies, which again historically, you know, like the Cisco's and the IBMs, and you know, they, they've been very um, leaders in their space for a long time. You've got now on the private side these emerging technology companies, and and having come out of the incubator space and worked, you know, on the investment side too, some of the best ideas are coming from these early stage companies uh, and really the partnership that those um, can have with the larger companies and collectively they then form with these cities is really interesting. And then the last stakeholder, which is one that is really not necessarily has gotten overlooked, but people haven't really thought about in these terms. There's some projects out there that really brought this to light. It's the public. And so if you think about public, private, and then the next party being people, The people really have got to be on board, whether you're trying to design a system with kind of human centered design and understand the needs or you're trying to get them involved or frankly, you're trying to get them involved in the conversation to make sure that they're not apprehensive or scared or they don't lend support. There's all these issues that if you don't get the public involved, you can really have some very tough consequences. So I think it's multiple public multiple private and now even more than ever the people have got to be involved so how many p's is that jim i know it's more than a that's few. a lot of P's. uh
1: thanks herb it's interesting that over the last probably decade or two there has been you know an evolution in that thought just as you described and you know some folks out there have have actually given it some labels and smart city 1.0 was when vendors suppliers would, would come to a city and uh, promote their solution as a, as a Swiss Army knife that f- did everything. Um, but those early installations, as you undoubtedly know, did not work out as well as everyone had, had intended. So the Smart City 2.0 perspective was that it really was a, a um, two-entity two partnership Um, A true and very simple public-private partnership between the city, the public agency, and then the vendor for perhaps, oh, I don't know, a remote control street lighting system. But those two, um, while they were better than earlier uh, attempts at smart city efforts, they fell um, short of the goals as well. So the smart city 3.0 terminology has been written about um, um, quite a bit in the last, I would say, five years and it is exactly that. It includes those that all of those other smaller stakeholders that are out there. So it might be the downtown business district. It might be the parent teacher association that's lobbying for a safe route to school for the kids to, to walk to school. It might be the bicycling community. It um, you know might be some environmentalists. It could be taxpayers. Um, there's you know a lot of those that really need to be defined before you start because if well in my anecdote and i'm a bike rider you don't want to build a bridge without a bike lane and then have the bicycle community come to you later and say where's my bike lane so you really do need to have a very conscious effort of of defining those stakeholder communities up front or else you risk um, disappointing someone
2: absolutely now that's interesting the uh um when people think about scaling, Jim, um, you know, the, the smart city 3.0 model has to scale and scaling doesn't always mean up. It means adoption. Uh, and it means to be able to create, you know, sustainable funding models. And you've got to be able to make sure that the people are getting the impact that they need. So the scaling is actually more penetration and sustainability. You're exactly right. You know, if you, uh, if you build a bike lane and it's not wide enough or people aren't using it or other challenges with it, um, it, it how good of a bike lane is that, right? No, ex- exactly. So, Herb, let's, let's go back to, you know, we you know, we, we've talked all about the evolution of
1: public-private partnerships over the last 10 or, t- or 20 years, but um, can you summarize why was that change necessary?
2: Well, I think there's a, a lot of reasons, you know, and I'll, I'll just kind of go through some thoughts here. You know, the first thing is that You've got to be able to create, you know, if we start with the people comment that I made, you've got to really be able to help the companies and, frankly, the cities too understand how do people live with the technology that they're using. And that's a dimension that's got a lot of different facets. You know, you've got a group of folks that are digital natives and they view technology and privacy and things like that very different than, you know, folks like maybe, you know, myself or you based on where they're coming from. And so that, that partnership has got to be through multiple lenses because frankly, younger generations are going to live with the technology a lot longer than you and me. And you've got to be able to understand that insight. If you look at um, trying to understand the public also involved in understanding the technology, how's that also going to potentially impact them or compromise their way of life if that's a concern? There have been some projects, and I'm not trying to pick on any projects, but we're all, all of us are learning all the time but there was a project up in Toronto that was started in 2017 of which was well-intended. It was 800 acres. And it was really started by, a, you know, it was, it was with sidewalk labs and Google. And there was a lot of good ideas there. We actually did a project uh, in Toronto just prior to that, that was not directly in support, but it was to help the infrastructure Canada, um, you know, um, challenge process, you know, to get Toronto up to speed. But the public didn't understand what was going on, and when their requests for information were really not met to their satisfaction, they became very nervous and concerned. And so we've seen this evolution of these partnerships has got to take you know, into account all the different stakeholders. And ultimately, if you really think about technology as really the means and not the end, the most important stakeholder in all of this is the people. And so the process had to change to include the people, um, representing not only their needs, you know, every person has got multiple different identities. You know, myself, I'm a father, you know, I'm an individual, I'm a business owner, you know, I'm a community member, I'm a volunteer, we all have different needs at different times. And you've got to be able to understand the different ways that people use the technology to be able to affect what they're trying to do with the time that they're using it or even experience it. So that's the first part. We had to change the process to make sure that people were not fearful, they understood it. They're going to support it, whether it's tax dollars or just allowing you to scale and get the support, and really continue to actually, frankly, act as the co-creator and take part in the ongoing innovation process. Because once the technology is deployed, it's iterative. You have to keep building additional insights and new use cases so people can adapt to it, and technology companies and cities can respond to it. So that's one dimension, Jim. You want me to go through a few more? Sure. Go ahead. So the um, the the other thing that we saw in these Public-private partnerships, you know, call it circa mid 2010 to, you know, 15 era. You started getting from an academic, interesting, you know, one or two stakeholder partnership models into now trying to deploy things. But these deployments were really initially what we call well-intended but demonstration projects with somewhat of um, a ill-defined what does success look like? And so, let's say if it was street lights as an example. And street lights are a great technology. They're trusted. They're commonly used. It's the standard today. They're well understood, and the impact is very real and it's measured. But the first handful of streetlight projects that were out there, um, they were really, I think, deployments to kind of showcase the technology. But there wasn't really a plan to scale and adopt the technology on the city side. And maybe it was because of lack of infrastructure, or they didn't know if they had the funding available, or they didn't really understand the labor that it would take to be able to implement them. But on the other side of the partnership, you have these very large companies that are building the technology. They may or may not have paid attention to the end user customer. In this case, it's both the city and the citizens. And lastly, these pilots didn't really lead to procurement. And if you're going to have a good partnership, these privately held companies are public traded, but private companies, they've got to have a path to procurement. And so if they don't understand what success is going to be for the city or the citizens, how in the world can they go to procurement? Because ultimately these companies have a mandate to make money, but the parties really need to get together and say, okay, do we understand the rules of engagement? And the public-private partnerships initially were kind of pilots to nowhere. They kind of felt good, a lot of activity, not a lot of progress, and ultimately didn't really have the impact for either company. And ultimately. The citizens didn't really get the benefit because they didn't go anywhere.
1: No, that's that's fascinating, Herb. You know, as as you spoke about, you know, Toronto and some of the challenges that have have um, occurred, the the words customer centricity uh, come to mind for me. That ultimately, it's that other looser group of stakeholders that really are the customer: the pedestrian, the person having dinner outside, you know. Um, you know, on the on the on the sidewalk, the bicycle rider, the the taxpayer, and what's often unsaid is that concern about privacy and about transparency. You know, um, in particularly about you know data collection and tracking people. Um, you know that that has been understated in some of these smart city you know efforts to date.
2: It it really has. You know the. So there are a couple, I guess, ways that I look at this for those digital natives, as an example that uh, that I just talked about, um, their viewpoint of privacy and transparency is really different. Now, it's interesting. You know, I am a very private person. I uh, respect privacy. And sometimes, you know, you look at the role technology has, you feel like you're compromising it. The reality is, I think that there's a constant bargain because. I willingly and very happily carry my phone. And that phone isn't just a phone. You know, like all of us, we carry smartphones these days, or most of us. And that phone knows everything about us. Now, just because it knows it doesn't mean that people can use that data. And so I really think there's kind of a, a, you know, a, a, a dynamic here to where the folks that are, first of all, giving up information. I think there's a level of transparency that people have to have. And be willing and aware. And, you know, you can't have it both ways, unfortunately. The digital natives, they assume that they have no privacy. They, they think it's gone. They, they, they don't necessarily like it, but they just have no expectation of it. Versus somebody like myself, I hope for it and I do read the terms and conditions of the apps that you download. I think most people don't. But as you give this up, the privacy has got to be transparent. It has to be. Accurate. If the policy changes, it needs to be updated, and I think it has to be very real. But I think people need to understand, you know, the the privacy is a lot of different dimensions. There's been regulation in Europe, you know, GDPR, and then you know, um, in California they adopted a version of that here, you know, a couple years ago. But privacy is important. But the reality is that what does privacy mean? You know, I certainly don't well, want those.
1: Are I mean that that's one half of the, of the trade off because once you have, you know, IoT and and all this all this communications technology you do get um you know a raft of, of of benefits you know shortly you're there's going to be an autonomous vehicle that will pick you up at your house or your pizza will get delivered by an autonomous vehicle right. um, you know um you know it, it helps with sustainability and you know de-siloing of of you know all, of uh, you know all types of of city and public agency applications so um let me ask you herb on a slightly different subject How do you
2: see these public private partnerships evolving in the future? Well, I think it's going to be interesting because, first of all, if you look at the cities, I think these partnerships, you you start creating a network. Um, The first one is that I think companies can be both competitive and cooperative, so that competition model to be able to advance technologies, to be able to help the cities and the cities. Working with each other too, and the peer-to-peer learnings. I think you're going to get a very what I call networked effect of these public-private partnerships because we all need to learn faster together. There's there's a lot of technologies. You know, some of the bigger ones that are on my mind these days. You know, artificial intelligence for sure. You know, autonomous vehicles. There's a long way to go still. There. You know, you've got you know robotics. there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And if we can all learn from each other and work better together, even if you're in competition on the private side, I think you've got to be able to change of how we talk about and communicate, whether it's setting standards, adhering to the standards, you know, collectively as groups or figuring out what's working and what's not working. Um, Gosh, I sure don't want to be in a, uh, you know, in, in, in a technology or a vehicle that if another city had an experience that the company that is producing the vehicle that I'm in could have learned from, I'd sure like to avoid, you know, getting into a fender bender or worse just because they didn't give up that information. So I think that the network mm-hmm. effect is one of them. I, I, I think another is you've got to find different ways to increase the funding. And so again, you know, the infrastructure investment jobs act, you know, created, you know, $550 billion in new spending. That's great. ARPA, you know, created, spending prior to that. What was interesting about ARPA, that was the first time that you really had at a mass scale, a higher level of accountability. Where do the funds go? How did you use them? What's the impact? I think the change that needs to happen is that we have to look at the return on investment dimension. It's not just financial. You know, I think there are really three, actually four, but the fourth one is a little bit opaque, Um, but the really dimensions that we have to evaluate these public private partnerships in a return on investment dimension. And I think we have to rethink of how we look at this and measure success. So I think those are two biggest areas that I think we have to look at it. And then lastly, we've got such big problems or challenges in the world today. I think we have to look at it through a wider group of stakeholders, you know, some of the innovation that's coming out of different segments. You know, the business community and the academic community, I think there's a way to continue to um, advance ways to bring them in. So these public private partnerships can address the problems faster and more effectively by bringing in more stakeholders to the equation. So that network effect um, isn't just between the bigger stakeholders, but it's also looking at more corners to be able to turn over to find the best ideas.
1: Sure. Herb, let me let me ask you a, a little bit of an off-topic question um you know cost accounting in the in the private business world is is fairly um you know well defined um you know in the public agency world not so much your your truck roll may be oh it could be costed out of thousand dollars or zero because the person is on staff and the truck's been paid for um you know how do you go about trying to build financial business cases around some of these
2: other softer smart city applications sure that that's a great question well let me give you one example that i think most people can relate to but it's got again a lot of different dimensions but i'm going to get into some specific economics as an example and so uh, at least where I live, nobody says, gosh, I really enjoy being stuck in traffic. I don't think anyone really ever says that, right? Even if you have a good podcast you want to listen to in your car, you'd like to get home for dinner. And so if you think about as a starting point, so something as simple as being stuck in traffic, okay? Nobody wants to be stuck in traffic. So for every extra mile that I drive, the vehicle that I'm in, I, 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 you know, I, I, I drive a, a truck, it puts 404 grams of co2 emissions into the atmosphere so the average vehicle puts about six and a half tons a year into the atmosphere so you've got a very simple dynamic of somebody spending time stuck in traffic i'm driving so now i've got co2 going to the atmosphere by the way for every hour that i spend in my car i'm not really incredibly productive whether i want to have you know family time or you know maybe i could you know, work another hour for my employer or, you know, make money, but there's a cost of time. But if I start looking at the entire daisy chain of that extra mile driven or hour in my car, let me give you the economics of that. So for every ton of CO2, it's about $50 a ton that, you know, it costs to be able to, you know, deal with that. Um, The health concerns that go with that, you know, those particulates that go into the air pollution, Go into water systems, and that water system then, you know, whether it's an aquifer or surface water from, let's say, a river, goes into the human body. The cost of healthcare because of contaminated water. I mean, depending on the community that you're in, but you can quantify that very easily. Um, If you think about every car that is on a road, especially in an urban environment, as an example, I'm stuck in a downtown traffic jam. um, That cost of a vehicle on the road. About 40% of all the vehicles at any given time in an urban environment are looking for a parking space. And so we're not only burning gas, which is, you know, a natural resource and precious, but I am also now potentially creating a hazard to public safety because I can run over a pedestrian. There's a cost to the economics of an accident. Imagine if I could reduce the cost of that, you know, truck roll being an ambulance and a fire truck, instead of a utility truck stringing the street light, um, the ability to be able to look at, okay, I now have an extra hundred hours a year that I can do something that I'm not stuck in traffic. You know, the average median, you know, cost for most communities is about 50, $50, $5 per hour. Great. I just could use it a little more productively. Maybe I can earn an extra income or by the way, that extra income goes into a tax base. That tax base can fund a community. And so you start getting the economics of environmental impact, workforce development, economic development, public health, personal health, public safety. All of that is just for me sitting in a traffic jam for an extra hour, driving an extra mile because I'm exiting off there trying to get around traffic. So the economics are actually very straightforward in multiple dimensions. There's the financial, there's the social, by the way, the social programs and most um, governments, there's a budget attached to that. So it becomes financial. Again, there's the environmental and sustainable, and then there's a the human element back to the quality of life. And so all of these, can be translated into highly quantifiable numbers. You know, we can go GDP on the high end to you know longevity and you know quality of life on the low end, and in between there are all these different economic development factors that cities like, and the companies can you know assign um, you know impact to their technologies being deployed.
1: you're absolutely right, Herb. Um, you know, I come from the transportation domain, and I and we off, often look at uh, well, looking towards the future about Intersections, you know, many accidents uh, happen at, at intersections. What intersection do you improve for safety? It's not just the frequency of the collision, but it's all of those other factors: response time to a fire and EMS. Who doesn't get served because someone is getting served at at a fender bender at an intersection? What about the response time at the emergency room at the hospital? And you know, all of those dependent scenarios. That, you know, in, for one traffic accident, there's, there's an awful lot there. Um, we also need to look at some of the technology-induced unexpected consequences. Like, I'm sure, Herb, you and I have both read studies about when the cost of autonomous vehicles drops so low, you may have a scenario where your autonomous taxicab is circling the block and fleets of them are circling the block creating their own traffic jam, just waiting for a potential
2: customer. It's, it's, you know, until a technology can be affordable. I mean, again, I've got to hand it to, you know, uh, Tesla. They not only have made um, Tesla to me is really as much of a energy storage company as it is a, a vehicle company, because until the battery technology was both affordable and also useful, you know, it's great to be able to drive a Tesla, but if you can only go twice around the block and then, You got a charger for 20 hours. I mean, it's never going to get adopted. But you're absolutely right, Jim. I think you've got to make, you know, a number of interconnected technologies useful, affordable, and obviously can have such significant consequences to where, you know, back in the day when you couldn't put your um, laptop in the overhead bin because the lithium, you know, ion battery was catching fire, kind of a bad problem to have if you're in flight. The technology had to evolve to make them safer, too. So you're absolutely right. Exactly. So let me ask you, Herb. So all um,
1: is probably not rosy in the world of public-private partnerships. What are some, you know, challenges
2: or pitfalls or, or things to think about as you consider embarking down that PPP uh, road? Oh, no, that's a great, that's a really good question, Jim. You know, there, I'm, I'm going to go to one that's um, a little bit more macro global, and then I'm going to go to kind of more U.S.-based and local. You know, the macro global. Um, one of the challenges is a combination of speaking in a language where we can understand each other because we don't always always, you know, have the same common language. There's a level of trust. The trust has got a number of dimensions. You know, there's, there's, you know, frankly, there's, you know, waste fraud and abuse that, you know, happen all over the world. It's not just any one country, but you know, the more, um, differences of currencies or, um, languages or even systems you know creates inefficiencies that sometimes can be taken advantage of Um, but also the challenge of working you know globally is that there's a lot of different challenges that we don't fully understand in all the dimensions so it could lead to a lot of mistrust by the by the people too so that's kind of on a global macro some of the things that have got to really change here um, i think or continue to evolve is you have to have a continued recognition and understanding um that it's got to be useful for all parties you know those mutual benefits are real and i'll give you an example um, you know i see like many other companies again pioneer partners we're not a we don't make software we don't make hardware we don't make anything we, we sit in the middle we help translate technology product and services and technologies into applications and impact for cities commercially we help the cities trying to understand you know, that they have to be able to communicate their needs or the citizens and, you know, their leadership mission and vision and goals of the companies too. But sitting in the middle, you realize that um, you've really got to have a level of tr- trust. And the level of trust is if the technology, you know, works, that's great, but marketing has a really good way of putting a spin on technology that's just not quite ready yet. And so the legacy of vaporware is one of those things that we really have to make sure that, We're very diligent to be able to speak clearly of the technology and the capabilities. It's okay to have a roadmap to future, um, you know, releases, but if it's not quite there yet, you have to be very clear on that. And the roadmap has got to be reasonably accurate. You can't say it's coming and then it never comes. Another problem that we really see is that you've got organizations um, like cities that are issuing sometimes RFPs or these other um, requests that that are really hard to respond to and it's not that it's the hardest the problem but that's the information that they need that's great but if they're going to issue these rfps they really need to respond in a way that it was a legitimate bona fide request for an opportunity for somebody to be able to win a bid and so i'm not suggesting that you know all rfps are not that way but i will tell you that sometimes the cities issue them prematurely they don't have a good understanding of what they're really asking for And the amount of time it takes for these companies, whether you're big and especially if you're small, it is an enormous amount of time. And I know that some of the best companies no longer respond to RFPs at scale because the process in itself is arduous or it's not always well designed to give the outcome that they're looking for, or maybe there's other challenges to begin with. So we've got to find a better way to be able to respond to the needs of the cities without having to go through these very long, arduous technologies but really everyone needs to be able to trust each other a little bit more and we got to continue building this trust along with the public trust on the way too i think those are some of the biggest challenges jim well, no, that, well that, that's
1: that's a really um uh, concise and insightful perspective okay. um you do need to meet in the middle and everyone needs to trust each other but um you know there was someone who said verify trust but verify okay. um the the suppliers themselves, well, you're right. The marketing folks are paid to overpromise, um, and you know, and create their their marketing hype. And on the other end, those those agencies and their and those cities, you know, often can create RFPs or have not even RFP, an RFI, with uh, perhaps no even funding behind it, just to perhaps look politically good from a in, a in a marketing outreach to their own stakeholder c- communities so it really is um quite a bit of a challenge there um you know as let me ask this as we've moved you know into more sophisticated and mature um public private partnerships have p3s changed the uh technologies themselves
2: they, they really have um I can give you a couple examples of how some of the things that we are, frankly, that we live with every day really came through a couple different P3 models. And what's interesting is that you don't always realize how it's going to work until you just kind of get to the other end. Um, So I'll give you an example. So have you ever seen those, uh, or maybe you have one, Jim, you know, those Roombas that are running around, you know, they're really helpful. helpful. So the Roomba came out from, a DARPA funded project. I mean, they had a robot called Shaky the robot back in the day and and really it was developed by a group called the Stanford Research Institute or SRI International now. And really that rumor that is, you know, you know, sweeping up after your, you know, pet hair or whatever it may be, really came from this public private partnership that they were trying to figure out what to do with the technology, what it could be useful for, and that technology evolved into a number of things that we have today. Um, you know, whether it's the Mars rover, which, you know, we've seen some of the stunning pictures that it came back, or the drones, or again, the Roomba, Roomba which is our domestic robot. It came out of a DARPA-funded project way back in the day, and that was really an example of, okay, let's take what is an interesting technology, but not quite useful. You know, the original six-foot-tall computer on wheels um, wasn't that useful, but we knew that we were on to something. If you get a little bit more practical into, like, the self-driving cars that we just talked about. You know, that also came out uh, interesting story. DARPA issued a challenge back in the day. And the goal, I think, was to be able to create a um, 142 mile course that you had to go, uh, you know, and drive across. And obviously, you know, the Mojave Desert, which is where the track was, it's a safe place. You're not going to run over anyone. And it's also, while flat, not always the most friendly. Um, you know, the heat environment can be very, fairly hostile. Now, what was interesting was this million dollar prize that they offered. Um, had a lot of entrants, And the first year that they did this, not a single car finished. Uh, it, was, it was it was pretty interesting. So I think the longest um, was seven miles that the car traveled um, and everyone else died in the vine. Now, what was interesting, this was an example of an iterative process that it was a successful failure because the next year back in, you know, in I think 2004 or five, they you know, up the prize money to 2 million And then they had five cars complete the course. Now, that technology process led directly to things like AI-enhanced video or LiDAR or ultrasonic sensors. Ultrasonic sensors are on the phone that you and I carry. That's how we get the range detection to figure out a good, you know, um, crisp picture, you know, on an iPhone or an Android phone. LiDAR, um, really useful in a lot of areas. Um, You know, Tesla and Mobileye, which was a technology that was on the front end side of at least one of the versions of the Tesla early products. I mean, there's all types of stuff. And then the last thing, which is my favorite, uh, Jim, uh, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a technology junkie at times, but I, I candidly, I don't adopt technology the first minute that it's out there because I know it can be kind of buggy, but I'm a big fan of, um, you know, the voice assistant devices, um, you know, by uh, Amazon or by Google. And again, DARPA came in, They issued an award, Uh, actually went to SRI in the early 2000s, and it developed a thing called the Cognitive Assistant that Learns and Organizes, or Catewell, which SRI then formed a startup, a little-known startup called Siri in 2007. Apple acquired it in 2010, and that's now powering devices to include other competitor devices um, that we use today. So the role of technology and where it comes from is really interesting. That was An example is something that is now ubiquitous in so many consumer applications. And again, it's interesting, the federal government, private sector companies, in some cases, agencies like NASA, some of the states, you know, um, I mean, gunshot detection came out of this. I mean, there's so many things that just come out from these partnerships. And if you really begin with the end of mind saying, what are we trying to impact? What are we trying to achieve? Well, you don't always know until you get there and so you've got to be open-minded and really it's a consistent um, tuning in to the needs of both the public and the art of the possible because as things become more possible the demands go there with it so it's a like constant exchange triangulating your way to what should we be doing what should we be doing now
1: exactly <laughs> exactly um, so so Herb as, assuming um. Let's put ourselves in the in the shoes of a city manager, a public works director, or maybe even a citizen activist. What would be the most important key elements for a successful uh, public-private
2: partnership? Oh gosh, to me, it's defining the problem and the challenges, which is a similar side of the coin, but not the exact maybe side of the coin of what are you trying to achieve? Because again, if you think about technology as a tool set. You've got to ask, you know, the folks, what are you trying to get it done? And so the same technology, let's say from the city side, that is trying to create more efficiency, you know, it's not that they're using technology to replace workers, especially, you know, in the bit, you know, great resignation era that we live in today, but they're trying to use technology to create labor, to do jobs maybe that are tedious or less desirable, or they can't find to be filled because they've got open work orders. And so that reducing errors, improving efficiency, lowering cost side to the other side of the citizen or other side of the coin to the person is, hey, I'd like to be able to, let's say, apply for a permit. And I don't want to have to drive across town to be able to go stand in a line, fill out a form, and then get sent a permit, you know, 10 days later to be able to have, you know, a, a picnic in a park shelter or maybe a festival. And so, beginning with the end in mind for all the stakeholders involved. And in this exact case, you know, you've got departments, you've got systems and technology. It'd also be very useful to understand what are the challenges to be able to get from point A to point B, because there's a lot of additional letters in that alphabet. So understanding the problem, understanding what you're trying to achieve, and getting the stakeholders involved on, you know, this, this design thinking oriented process to look at things is the key. I think that's the key to every good smart city project. For technology problems today.
1: So uh, so uh, in shorthand, that is finding your stakeholders, uh, defining stakeholder communities, getting, extracting out of them user needs and turning that into your, your project specification.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Bottoms up to represent the voice of the, the customer, the citizens, top down to represent the mission, vision, and goals of the city and get the folks in the middle to figure out how do we get from point A to b point B to make sure that they understand um, you know how they can interact with that equation uh, to be able to deliver the results and get the benefit they need to? absolutely
1: sure and, ho- and ho- hopefully you know de deconstructing each each of these needs so that there's a financial um, a compelling financial model behind them
2: and absolutely and i and I think understanding the value of talking about what you're trying to do. You know, the theory behind open innovation, um, instead of it being the stealth project where you're trying to be clever, protective to try and guard the idea and have the big aha moment to where you're trying to find, you know, that needle in the haystack, you've got to switch it around. You've got to become, you know, you broadcast the idea so the haystack finds you. You become the needle into where if you're trying to solve a problem, you really invite the community at large to comment on it interact with it you've got to build local support local isn't just you know in the backyard that you live in but the world community academia private sector company other cities that have experienced similar challenges or things I mean being able to broadcast what you're doing to the world and then listening um, is really key yeah it's a challenge it's
1: a challenge that that the stakeholders come in such a variety of uh, come with such a variety of perspectives that it's it's often a challenge and it's it's difficult for any one person for, with one perspective to really understand where you know from from which they see from the position of which they see. Um, you know, we recently did a podcast with with a company that um, instead of offering a 2D representation, a flat representation of street lighting, um, of, of, of the light falling on the road, the sidewalk, uh, they recently come up with a with a 3D uh, approach, and they take the lighting um, uh, output files for each fixture, and as a result, in a 3D model, you can see light falling, uh, you know, on the front on the vertical front door of your home, or you can see how the how the lighting levels change with changes in elevation, for example. Um, that has proven to be very popular because the 2D the 2D But just colored circles really doesn't communicate much to to some of those folks out there that might not be lighting engineers, for example. So it's interesting that um, you really do need to not only broadcast it out there, but try to understand how those stakeholders can really consume that information.
2: Absolutely. It reminds me of a project that we did. Oh, gosh, probably in 2000 and maybe 18 or so. And it was interesting because it was, it was in a smaller community of about 100,000 folks. And it was a lighting related project as part of a smart city master planning, bigger plan. And really, they were trying to reduce crime, uh, improve public safety relative to feeling safe in a parking structure. But like many of these other, you know, um, developments that are going up, It was mixed use. It was retail, office down, residential up in a two, three, four story, you know, environment. And really, they needed that tunable lighting that was not only dimmable, but you could also tune it so that white lighting wouldn't shine through your window at night and keep you up all night because the circadian rhythms were messed up. But really, it's hard to see the impact of this when you're just looking at a two dimensional diagram, being able to look at something interactive or three dimensional or look at, you know, you know, the foot candles and the throw and how bright is going to be coming through. And, you know, I got to get a shade and not, you know, um, you know, Venetian blinds because it's going to otherwise come through. I mean, there's so many dimensions. And I think even the additional technologies that can help people um, simulate the impact of the technology before they really take a substantial risk and either, you know, certainly the cost or the time or even the public backlash and getting something wrong because they could have avoided it. I think that's really important
1: yeah i mean I, this this reminds me of a uh, of um a small city um in uh, in the northeast where um less than a hundred thousand people and it was a small college campus two miles outside of town and a um satellite classroom or two downtown. the mayor wanted to put up kiosks to lead the kids this the students um to the downtown and back and forth. but you know the key the cost of a kiosk is quite substantial and when we really looked at all of the stakeholders what actually came out of this well better lighting well led lighting saved energy enough energy to create some free wi-fi high bandwidth internet for the students and and uh, downtown business district um as well as it also funded for two kiosks Um, so it really you really need to look at this integration and of of all of these applications but also be able to communicate to in this case the students that you'll have better wi-fi then you could do your homework you know outside or or in this remote building Um, you know as well as Offering the mayor what what he wanted to, so that he could drive the funding, which was a couple of kiosks that he could pose with in his campaign literature. <laughs> right,
2: right, right. No, it's it. Yeah, I mean, even the kiosks have gone through such an evolution, Jim. Um, you know, we used to somewhat joke that if, and again, and there's some truth to this. You know, it sometimes you have to have what I'll call quicker wins for these public-private partnerships to be successful, because the citizens will see planning meetings. And they'll hear a lot of you know buzz in the media but then now they're looking for something that's invisible because some of the most important uh things that you're going to do are invisible you know putting up public wi-fi you, you know it's not like you can see it going through the airways i mean people sure know it when they don't have it and they get frustrated but when you put it up while well, they're thankful you don't get a lot of thank you cards in the mail but it's invisible you can't see it those kiosks yes. are sometimes we you know kind of joke they're like oversized ipads that you know you take a six and a half foot kiosk shoving the sidewalk and all of a sudden The citizens think, oh, that's that smart city headline that I saw. And this must be the result of it. But those kiosks really have evolved from just what I'll call a gimmicky, you know, Wi-Fi hotspot to much more interesting things. You know, beyond wayfinding, the digital advertising model hasn't quite worked out as people have Mm -hmm. thought. But really, especially in this era of um, additional sensorization, you know, the cabinetry that's safe place to be able to pull power and have a secured location. No, exactly. You know, vehicle, vehicle location, oh, uh, equipment, you know, on the, on the roadside. There's so many things that those kiosks can do. And we haven't even figured out half of them, you know, in the near future, but that physical location is so important. It's everything. And there's so many different things that manufacturers or early stage companies really should be thinking about because the needs of the city and the people. I mean there's all types of stuff when you have a physical location that's close to the action that you can do
1: exactly uh herb you know we're we're, we're nearing the end of our of our hour um let me ask somewhat of a um you know a a comprehensive question so if i am that city manager you know how what's what's a cookbook approach you know how do i create a successful
2: public-private partnership so if I were to give kind of a point form narrative real quick back, you know, first, understand what you're trying to achieve. Um, you know, who are the stakeholders that are involved You know, usually it's citizens, residents, but they also some of the folks that city managers need to be thinking about whether they like it or not is most cities are competing for people. You know, people provide that workforce that um, attracts employers and that high quality of life and the job that you want comes from people. So you've got to build a very high-quality, highly livable, you know, safe, secure city. So if you don't have a safe and secure and high-quality life, I mean, you're really on the back end. And by the way, your neighboring community, whether it's across, you know, um, you know, the city limit or another state, I've seen signs, billboards saying, hey, move to X community, we'll give you $15,000 to move. So city managers really need to think, okay, what are we trying to affect? And a lot of times it's an economic development dimension. The next thing that they really got to think about is, okay, what's our time frame um, to include everything from problems that are firsthand, you know, what funding they have available, the ability to be able to pair up, you know, funding, you know, you can float a, you know, municipal bond, uh, if you can achieve a cost savings, there's, you know, ESCO models to where you can get a cost reduction that's being paid for by performance, you know, you can look at federal funding, maybe you can get a grant, maybe it's all four of those things. If you've got emerging technology that can be useful, but the funding piece, you got to assess what is the funding, but now it goes back to ROI. What is the impact that the city needs to be able to make this a valuable use of both their money and their time? And frankly, the the trust of the citizens. If you kind of define those, you can reach out to the additional stakeholders to start creating these partnerships to figure out who is it, why would they be interested? And are they available right now with a useful technology that I can start implementing and it's a holistic point of view that's the last piece you've got to have a holistic view because all the technologies are interconnected you can't look at things in silos nothing exists in a silo today and if you don't understand the dependency of the technologies or how one thing can make another technology more valuable by complementary data or creative then you know you're really missing the boat.
1: that's true i mean there there are the the economic the um you know social and environmental you know aspects to this Uh, but ultimately it is important to remember that public agencies tend to rely on one of three models to actually drive revenue and it's sales tax income tax or property tax so ultimately at the end of the day you're looking to amplify you know the the sources from from one or all of those
2: it, it, that's absolutely true. I think the one that's um, recently emerging and it hasn't emerged fully is, you know, the pandemic really forced an almost overnight virtualization of more city services than people really were intending to virtualize because you couldn't know, go to work. You couldn't provide the services and the citizens couldn't come in for the services, too. But the city services had to continue. So that cost reduction factor is very real. And it's not just technology and jobs, it's workflow, the cost of time. And so there's a number of ways you can finance things. And it's not always, you know, perfectly obvious from a pure um, basis. But there's a lot of, you know, work studies, technology impact, you know, you know, analysis that can be conducted um, by different groups that can really try and do, uh, you know, some quantification of the impact of technologies.
1: Great. Well, well Herb, we've, uh, we're have we nearing the end of our hour. Do you have any last uh, comments for our audience today?
2: Well, the, the last comment I'd have is, you know, public-private partnerships are real. They're not going away. They're more useful than ever before. They're really a way to, I think, even speed up the innovation process that ultimately has a bigger impact on people. And I think more than ever, we've got all types of challenges that we really have got to address. So. Um, my hat's off for those that are on the front lines of the public-private partnerships and the innovation, the folks that are making it happen, you know, like your firm. Uh, but um, aside from that, I mean, we all are in this together. We've got to think collectively, you know, together, but we all can play a role if we just kind of speak the common language and, and realize that we can help each other in these partnerships.
1: Well, great. Well, um, thank, thanks, Herb. Again, my, my guest today was Herb C. of uh and uh, Herb, let me ask you, um, if our listeners would like to uh, reach out and contact you, what is your uh, contact information?
2: Sure. Well, you can go to Pioneer Partners website. It's p3pioneers.com. Um, again, we came out of the Think Big Partners era. That was our uh, original kind of company. You can find plenty of our work product on that as well. Um, you can always contact me by email as well. It's herb.sih at p3pioneers.com. You know, you can find us through different partners too. We work with uh, large technology companies, engineering firms. Again, we're technology and vendor agnostic. We've got a lot of great people out there and if anyone wants to contact us, look we're happy to just point you in the right direction, have an intelligent conversation. certainly we're happy to, you know, help people make an impact in their community too, whether you're a city or a technology company or whatever it is, we just, we all this together.
1: Well, Herb, th- thank you very much for, for joining uh, me today, and hopefully we'll have you on on again with uh, new developments in the world of, of smart city public-private partnerships. And to everyone who's listening in today, thank you very much for attending this smart city podcast, and we look forward to uh, you listening in on, on future episodes as well. Thank you very much.
0: Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, the Smart Cities Podcast is the only podcast dedicated to all things Smart Cities. The podcast is the creation of ARC Advisory Group's Smart City Practice. ARC advises leading companies, municipalities, and governments on technology trends and market dynamics that affect their business and quality of life in their cities. To engage further, please like and share our podcast or reach out directly on Twitter at Smart City Viewpoints or on our website at www w dot backslash industries backslash smart dash cities